0: I have to forewarn you a little bit though, uh, I, I do feel like uh, this sermon may run a little bit long. And I say that because I don't want you to be like, oh, we can get out early. Um, but I want to cover all these verses, uh, verses 1 through 31 in today's text of Mark chapter 10. And the reason why I want to cover all of them, because they are so intricately tied together. And they bring us to a really specific point that I want us to see. And at first they might not appear like they are tied together. If you isolate these three little instances that we have here this morning, they are going to appear really disjointed. We have a story about, a, uh, about the Pharisees who come to Jesus and ask a difficult question about divorce. Then we have another scene, of course the famous scene which, with the rich young ruler who comes and asks, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then our last scene in verses 28 through 30 on, we have a scene where the apostles actually claim that they too have dedicated themselves enough to God. So there's three little instances here that I want us to look at, and they are so important. Because here what Mark does, you have to know at the beginning of Mark chapter 10, there's a gap in time (laughs) from our last chapter. Uh, We noted at the beginning of our study that Mark likes to do various things with his text. He's more uh, interested in in getting a theme across than necessarily going through chronologically Jesus' life. And so there's a little bit of a gap here, but he's wanting to continue a theme so that you don't miss it. So here, at the beginning of chapter 10, right after Jesus is talking about fire and salt, he says, And he arose from thence and comes to the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again, and he was wont. He taught them again. Mark is jumping in time to continue his narrative. This theme of people misconstruing the kingdom misconstruing either who is allowed into it or what the kingdom is going to look like. We saw that continuously in chapters 8 and chapters 9. And now the conversation turns back again here at the beginning of chapter 10. It will turn back again to what entrance into the kingdom of God looks like. We have been looking at what the kingdom of God is. As Jesus kind of upsets uh, what the apostles thought about the Messiah and what he would come to do and such. Our first little glimpse of this sort of conversation is all the way back from chapter 3. Where Jesus talks about who his family is like. If you remember that story. And here we return to this theme again. This theme of how do we enter into the kingdom. And it happens through these three stories. Through three uh, interactions of Jesus with very different individuals. And again they might appear disjointed, as if they have no sort of connective tissue other than the fact that they're in the same chapter. But I would reckon this morning that they are intricately related. And in fact, I think the crux of each of these interactions, as Jesus is dealing with them, is the exact same thing, yet through three different lenses. And I will explain that as we go. So first of all, I want you to see in verses 1 through 12, the purity of the Pharisees. The purity of the Pharisees. Because notice verse 2. Jesus has come. It says on the coast of Judea. And it says. And the Pharisees came to him. Verse 2. And asked him. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife tempting him? Our old pals. The Pharisees. Jesus' good buddies. The Pharisees are back again. They haven't really been active for a little bit. They've actually been kind of quiet since chapter 8. At the beginning of it. And they pop up here again and they're still about their devious, their dubious, their conniving ways. And they come to Jesus and very clearly they're trying to entrap him. They're trying to entrap Jesus yet again by asking him a question. And notice how they pose it. Is it lawful? Is it lawful to divorce your wife? They ask him this question. Point blank. But I like how Mark includes tempting him. <laughs> They're not genuine in their question their questioning of Jesus. Instead, they come to him with the self-righteousness that the Pharisees were so known for at this point, and they come to him as those who are experts on the law, and they ask him, "Is it lawful? What's lawful in the matters of divorce?" A tough question, a question that Jesus must answer. He's put to the test, so to speak. Their question is, what is allowable? That word lawful, what's allowable under the law? What meets the law's standards when it comes to marriage and separation and annulment of marriages and divorces and such not? The Pharisees, of course, they have an agenda. The Pharisees here are representing sort of two various rabbinical schools in this day. One group were a very liberal school of thought, which, which... actually postulated that uh, that matters of divorce could be ratified and they could be deemed lawful for any old reason. You didn't really need a very verifiable reason. It's just anything that the husband finds displeasing. It could be legal grounds for divorce. That was, quote, lawful. Another rabbinical school was a lot more strict. Instead, they said uh, that only uh, the only grounds for lawful divorces in this time was infidelity or some such sexual sin. And you can hear their questioning, you can hear that sort of in their voices as they come to Jesus and say, what's allowable? What's the lawful use of the law in this scenario? Both groups, the really liberal group and the really strict group, both saw themselves as fulfilling the law's standards, as the, quote, lawful group. But their views of lawfulness... We're not according to God's standards. And such is what he is going to get into. Because notice what happens. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he, that is Jesus, answered and said unto them, what did Moses command you? He turns them back to the law. He turns them back to scripture. He turns them back to the very books of the Bible with which they would be so familiar with. It, or They would be experts in. What did Moses tell you? You know. You know the law. Don't come to me asking me what the standard is. You tell me what the standard is. What did Moses tell you? They respond, verse 4, and they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. They reply accurately, citing Deuteronomy chapter 24, which talks about rules and scenarios for bills of divorcement, so to speak. And Jesus, though, again, he does an unexpected thing. They had come to him asking him basically, Jesus, where do you land? Where are you? Are you a little bit this way? Do you lean this way or do you lean a little bit more this way? And Jesus, look at verse 5. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation of God, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. You see, rather than give them a commentary on the law as they wanted him to do, he goes back to God's original intent. They so desperately wanted Jesus to to make a a notion, to give them a commentary, to give them an answer. And he, Jesus, unexpectedly reorients their entire view of marriage by, by making them see that this code, this code for bills of divorcement was not created by God. He reinforces that this standard of man's purity is nowhere near God's standard. That's striking to us. It should be striking to us. You see, you have to understand their questioning of Jesus. What is lawful? What fulfills the law? What is allowable? Can I I get here and that's allowable? Or do I have to go really even farther than that? And Jesus is saying... It's not even close to being far enough. He's clarifying that this idea of Moses writing bills of divorcement, while allowable, was not originally created and intended, as he says, from the beginning. It wasn't part of God's design for marriage and the union between a male and a female. He says, actually, from the beginning of creation, God's design was lifelong union. That was his intent. That was his plan. That was his purpose between the husband and wife to represent his union with his entire creation. It wasn't a contract between two people that could be separated by a handwriting by a man. It could. It was actually a covenant. It was a covenant between a man and a woman, just like God Himself had covenanted with us. It's an undertaking. Marriage, as Jesus is defining it, wherein the husband and wife give of themselves to each other in a covenantal relationship. As he says in verse 8, so that they are no more twain, they are no more two, but one flesh. And if that weren't enough, the disciples are stunned perhaps by Jesus' response. And they ask him verse 10 and in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter they want to know the answer too Jesus you explained you explained God's view then but really what what do you believe and notice what he says and he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall be put away shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Jesus' words don't leave much room for error, do they? They're strict. They're righteous. They're enforcing a, an impossible standard. <laughs> And Jesus is basically saying, yep. There's zero room for error when you take the law at its words. There's zero room for error. If you want to fulfill, if you want to live your life as, quote, lawful under the law, it is an impossible standard. These words are unflinchingly rigid. He intensifies the law. Any of you, uh, I'll just say this, you might be thinking this morning, well that's a bummer. Where's the good news in that, Pastor Brad? Well, just stick with me, stay with me, I promise. Because there's a bevy of hope in this passage. Yes, even for you, if you're here this morning and you have been through the hardships of divorce. There's grace for you. Because I want you to see Jesus' point is not necessarily that. He is responding to the Pharisees on their level. They had come to him with a question about what is the lawful use of the law in marriage. They are essentially saying, how can we fulfill the law enough to be deemed righteous? So Jesus is... Response to them is showing that their perceptions, their understandings, their interpretations of the righteousness of the law fall woefully short of what the law actually calls for. They are so far short of actually achieving lawful purity, it's not even funny. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get them to see. That their purity, their purity is not enough. It's not enough. The law's standard for purity is not keepable by human effort or energy. That's what Jesus leaves them with here. And then notice, we have to jump to verse 17 because we have to see the second scene. We have the purity of the Pharisees. Look at verse 17. Here we have the activity of the young ruler. Look at what happens. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This one who ran after him and kneeled before him. We know from the parallel passages it is the rich young ruler as he's commonly called. He's a young, wealthy, aristocratic, and religious ruler, nobleman, so to speak. And he asks this pressing question. What can I do? What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And we know this question burns in him because he ran after Jesus. He sprinted in order to catch Jesus and get his answer. And of course... As we've seen so many times, Jesus doesn't answer him in the way that he expected. Because watch, Jesus pauses. And he answers his question with another question. Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus, verse 18, said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. Why do you call me good? An odd turn of phrase. An odd thing perhaps for Jesus to say. But he's hinting at what will come next. Because you see this young ruler is approaching Jesus. And just at his very title that he employs. Good master. Good teacher. The inference being that Jesus was one who had quote figured it out. He had figured out how to be good enough. And so this rich young ruler then. He wants to be told how he can learn the same way that he can be good enough. Good teacher, teach me how to be good that I may be assured of eternal life. Good teacher, tell me what I have to do or what I can do to enter into the kingdom. You see, in this young ruler's mind, as long as he knew what to do, that would be enough. He would be safe. He could inherit the kingdom. So this is why Jesus says, there is none good but one, that is God. Hinting at what? That all goodness is received. And notice verse 19, he says, thou knowest the commandments. He's going to remind him of the law. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do you fraud not? Honor thy father and mother. He reminds him. If you are so religious as you claim, you know what the law says. You know how to inherit eternal life if you're trying to do it by your own doing. It says this. This is the standard. This is the requirements. The rich young ruler. So sure of himself. Look at verse 20. And he, the young man, answered and said unto him, Teacher, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. I've done that. <laughs> I've done that Jesus. All those things that the law requires. I've done them. I've fulfilled them. All those strict standards that the law requires. I've fulfilled them. I've observed them all. That word there observed is interesting. Because it means guarded. He's guarded himself against all those things. So in his mind, he was good. He was golden. He was ready made for the kingdom. You sense what I sense with this young ruler? He's not actually looking for what he lacks. He's actually looking for affirmation of what he already thinks he possesses. He's coming to Jesus. Affirm what I've already been doing. Because all those things that the law requires, I've already done them. So I should be good enough. He wants that verification. He wants that endorsement from Jesus. That all of his righteous and religious activity has been good enough to observe the law to the fullest. He's probing Jesus. He's prompting Jesus. Master, I've done all that. And he wants Jesus to say, why of course you've done it. Why, of course, good job, here's my stamp of approval, enter into the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't do that. Because according to this rich young ruler, he's never lied egregiously. He's never killed one, really. And he's never stolen anything of real value. Such is why Jesus, in verse 21, he reminds him, Again, of the law. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. You see, in the young ruler's mind, he had already made it. He had done more than enough. So when Jesus says, You know the commandments, he is saying, Exactly, I've done all those things. And if that's the standard, where's the door? I can walk in because I'm good enough. I've observed them since I was a little boy. I've been in church since I was five. I've done all that. And the rich young ruler's swagger makes Jesus behold him in love. Jesus is so compassionate for this young man. I love, again, verse 21. Because Jesus hears this self-righteousness in this young religious man. And he says, or it says about Jesus, it says that he beholds him and loves him. He's not necessarily frustrated and angry. He has compassion for this young man. His expression on Jesus' face changes. And his eyes, I would say, bleed with almost an agape compassion. Because he knows He knows that this young man is lost. He's been living in his own goodness. And he loves him, I would say, with a pitiable, tragic love. Because he has not understood the law. And therefore he has not understood righteousness. And therefore he has not understood what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. And such is why in verse 21, where he says, there's one more thing you still lack. He says, go thy way. Sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. He amplifies the law once again. You've you've done good, yes, but not good enough. Righteousness is more than just doing good. You see, Jesus is taking the young ruler, and just like the Pharisees, at his own game. You're trying to inherit the eternal life by your doing. Here's the requirements. Here's the list. Here's the standard. And his point. Jesus' point is that this law is a code that is too high for anyone to obey completely. It's too rigid. It's too strict. No one on earth can live up to his demands. No one can fulfill this law fully. Fully enough to achieve righteousness or goodness. There is none good but God. Therefore, for all of this rich young ruler's activity and his righteous deeds, he could not earn righteousness for himself. Such is why it says, and he was sad at that saying, verse 22, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. He knew what the full standard was. And he was grieved. Because he couldn't do that. The activity of the young ruler. But notice quickly. Before I make the point so to speak. Look at verse 28. Because I want you to see. We have the, the purity of the Pharisees. The activity of the young ruler. Here in verse 28 we have the loyalty of the apostles. Look. Good old Peter. Peter. He speaks up. Then Peter began to say unto him, unto Jesus. Listen to these words. Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. I think it's important to keep that verse right after verse 22. We'll we'll jump back and get into those middle verses there in a minute. Because you have to see the connection. Because obviously the apostles have been privy to all of these interactions and conversations that Jesus has had so far. So they're hearing him, They're hearing Jesus give his responses. He's hearing these questions, and they're hearing Jesus respond in very unexpected ways, and suddenly they chime in, with Peter, of course, speaking for them. And now they're saying, "You know, you know all those things that you told the rich young ruler to do? We've done them, God. We've got done them, Jesus. We have left all, and have followed thee." We've left everything. What about us? Are we loyal enough? Good enough to be righteous? Hearing these words. Jesus answers again unexpectedly. In verse 29. Jesus answered and said. Verily I say unto you. There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now and this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last. And the last first. Jesus' reply here. He says that there will be blessings given to those who believe and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. But coupled within that response is Jesus' reminder that no amount of human sacrifice is good enough to live up to God's standard. And to understand that, we have to backtrack a little. Because again, Jesus stuns the young ruler and the apostles. With his unblinking perspective on the law's standard for righteousness. He says, This is what it is. And if you notice, actually, verse twenty-four, it says the disciples were astonished at his words. Why? Well, verse twenty-three, and Jesus looked around about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom? They are astonished. They are terrified. They are frightened by this saying. And Jesus doesn't leave it there. He doubles down. Look at the next saying. And the disciples were astonished. But Jesus answereth, answereth again. And saith unto them children. How hard is it for them that trust in riches. To enter into the kingdom of God. He employs a staggering figure of speech then. In verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Staggering figure of speech, which obviously sounds impossible, and because it is. I want to be clear though Jesus is not necessarily condemning rich people. He's not saying that rich people are somehow less spiritual than poor people and that poor people are more spiritual than wealthy people. Riches in this sense is riches of self-righteousness. Because you have to see, every conversation so far has been about what? Entering the kingdom. It isn't just satisfaction now, it's eternal life. They're looking for a way in which eternal life can be secured. And so if we can secure it by being rich unto ourselves, that's what Jesus is condemning. Riches that are unto ourselves, riches in our own goodnesses, riches in our own loyalty, in our own activity, in our own purity... He's referring to self-sufficiency. The wealth of self-sufficiency. How hard it is for those to enter the kingdom of God. He's using this word rich here I think to employ that those who are rich in wealth and rich in religion have equally difficult time entering the kingdom. Why? Because both are inclined to think that they in and of themselves are enough. They don't need anyone. If you are good enough because of all your religious deeds, or if you are good enough because you have a bank account with seven figures, it doesn't matter. You are good enough. I have enough. Jesus is using the saying there to say, that's not even close. Such is why he says in verse 26, Or it says that the disciples are stunned by the impossibility of the standard. And it says they were astonished out of measure. Now they were, before they were just astonished. Now it says they are astonished out of measure. Exceedingly, abundantly terrified by Jesus' saying. Such is why they respond. Who then can be saved? It sounds impossible, Jesus. And he's like, yeah. It is. And Jesus, looking upon them, with said, "With men, it is impossible. But not with God, for with God all things are possible." Take this test with me, will you? When was the last time you murdered someone? You don't have to raise your hands. No, uh, well, we'll turn the camera off right now. I'm just kidding. I venture to say no one has. But when was the last time you wanted to? When was the last time you were angry with someone? Maybe when you were walking through the threshold of church this morning. (laughs) I've been there. You can laugh. I've been there too. You walk through that threshold. And as you were just angrily trying to get your kid out of the car. And you walk through. Hey. (laughs) Jesus' point if you remember Matthew chapter 5, both, both mean you have failed the law. Whether you have actually in rage actually gone out and taken someone's life. Or whether you have thought that you have just been so angry at someone for something that they said or did unto you. Both are failures of, righteous, of the righteousness of God. That's God's standard. It's not just not killing. It's not even getting angry. It's not just not committing adultery. It's not even having a lustful thought. It's not just loving your neighbor. It's loving your enemy. Loving someone who hates you. Does that sound impossible? I hope it does because it is. Salvation by yourself is absolutely impossible. Such is why we have the grace of God. Because we go back to verse 27. With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are impossible. Righteousness by yourself is not just hard. It's impossible. It's not doable. We like to think that righteousness is just a really difficult thing that we can accomplish with enough effort and enough strenuous, strict discipline. And Jesus is saying righteousness is not a hard thing to accomplish. It's an impossible thing that you will never fulfill except by grace through faith. This is what fulfills the standard. It doesn't come down uh, to your purity, your activity, your loyalty. It comes down to one thing, faith. Faith in the fact that the impossible standard has already been fulfilled on your behalf. Faith that is daring enough to believe in the impossible. Martin Luther said that that's what faith is. It's a daring confidence and boldness to believe in God's grace a thousand times over. And it's daring because it believes something that seems unlikely. That God Himself would come down and live this standard for putrid, filthy sinners like you and me. That sounds unlikely. And He's saying, This is what I'm doing. And such is why we have that wonderful scene. Go back again. Verse 13. You might have noticed that we skipped it. Because it's here. Jesus is saying we have to be like children. Remember it says. And they brought young children to him. They being a crowd of sorts. And they, that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. Jesus doesn't have time for children. <clears throat> and then when Jesus saw it. He was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me. And forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms and put his hands upon them and blessed them. He's calling us to be like children. And what I mean, by that... Like children, being just gullible enough to believe in the impossibility of grace. Just bold enough to believe that what Jesus says is actually really true. And no other things can distract or get in there. Just gullible enough to believe that the impossible has been made possible by one thing. The grace of God himself. He's calling us to be like children. To believe that he himself, Jesus, is the impossible possibility. That he's come and fulfilled all righteousness for you and for me. And he gifts it to us. Gifts it to every sinner. Every broken heart. Every broken family. It may have been impossible in and of yourselves. Yes, but he says with me all things are possible. Every adulterer can be made clean. Every liar can be made truthful. Every broken family can be made whole again. Why? Because I am the God of the impossible. I'm the God of all grace. And I've come to do one thing. To fulfill this standard on your behalf. To live up to the righteousness of the law. Because you couldn't do it. You would never be able to do it. In a thousand lifetimes. In a million lifetimes. He accomplishes this on your behalf. He fulfills every point of the law for you and for me. And in grace he gives it to us. By faith. See, Jesus is dismantling all of our schemes of self righteousness, wherein we can try and win for us eternal life, whether by purity or activity or loyalty. He says, I am the God of the impossible. The only thing that inherits eternal life. You want to know what inherits eternal life? faith and faith in what faith in an obedience that's already finished faith in a righteous standard that is already satisfied there's nothing left to do what may i do that i can inherit eternal life believe that it is already done Believe that when Jesus says it is finished, that he finished all of these standards that were weighing over you. And he washes you in his blood so that you might be righteous. Let's all be children. And believe in that story because it's true. It's no children's tale. This is the gospel of God. The gospel of the God of the impossible. And he gives us that. By grace through faith. Let us pray.